Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today on LGBTQ&A, I'm talking to Chelsea Johnson. Chelsea is the author of the very queer novel, Stray City. It is set in Portland, and we talk about the queer haven that Portland was in the 90s. We also talk about gossip in the LGBTQ community, and Chelsea says something that I hadn't thought about before, which is that for our community, which for so long had such little representation in mainstream media, gossip operated as a way to tell our own stories, to document our community and really own our narratives. So I found that really fascinating. And then as always, if you would be so kind as to subscribe, rank us five stars, and leave a comment on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it. It is one of the biggest ways that new people find our show. So big thank you to everyone who's done that. And then as always, don't forget to check out our old home at AfterBuzz TV. They're the number one place for all your TV after show discussions. All right, without further ado, here's Chelsea. So, so much of the book was about chosen families. And one of the parts that struck me was when the main character's ex-partner and friends just stepped in to help care for her child. And then she in return helped care for her partners or ex-partners after her surgery. It was small, but it's so important in our community. Yeah, there's things about their situation that would be sort of legible to the mainstream straight reader, right? It looks sort of homonormative, right? So it was important for me to also show that friend family is still a really core essential part of who family is to them. I think that sometimes the nuclear family can be a very isolating unit where it's two parents and whatever kids, and it's like them against the world, you know? (laughs) You see this played out in dystopian movies, especially, or in the sense of apocalypse, like the only people we can trust is each other. And uh, I guess I wanted to show the opposite of that, where, yes, you may have, like, your partner, you may have children, biological or foster or otherwise, but it's really important that you also have this network of other people who are there to hold you up. And I love that you showed that um, her exes were still part of that, too. Absolutely. I think that is such a characteristic of queer life, certainly of lesbian life and presumably of, you know, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and across you, the spectrum. You even get a reason for it that I've never thought about before, which is that our numbers are so small. We yeah. have to maintain these connections. Yeah, we need each other. And, you know, if we don't stand up for each other, who will? Yeah. You know, I think that exes are a really important part of our chosen families. And they often, the friendship with an ex, like, long outlasts whatever period of time you were involved with them romantically or sexually. Absolutely. It's almost like a gateway to a lifelong friendship. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think we like talk about these chosen families and these support systems and found loves with such nice words and they they are nice and they're lovely, but I also think that there's so much hard work to maintain and create. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all families are tricky, you know? The families we're born into have complicated dynamics and everybody's bringing in their baggage and what they learned from their own families and then, you know, kind of reforming and and figuring out how to work together with these other people. And I feel like it's no different for chosen families too, you know? Especially, I think, with people who who come from complicated family situations that may not have been accepting or may have been hard in various ways, you know, we bring that into our chosen families too. And I think it takes a lot of work to learn how to love each other and be good to one another, even when we're trying to break those patterns from society or birth families or whatever. Yeah. So oftentimes, you know, queers can be really terrible to each other too. Like I don't want to solely romanticize the chosen family. I think just as with any family, it takes work for it to work well. Yeah. And something I hadn't thought about before, uh, 
somebody on this podcast mentioned is that we need to treat our chosen families like our other family members. And that Mm. means celebrating birthdays and calling them on holidays and making Mm. sure they have all these things. Yeah. And that makes total sense when someone said that to me. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And I also long for the the experience, and and some people do have this, but uh, I think it's also really important for birth families to treat us, to treat each other like chosen families. So when some kind of major, you know, pro-queer legislation happens, for example, how wonderful for your straight friends and your straight family members to call you, like to recognize like, oh, this is important for you, you know, (laughs) even if it's not something that strikes them immediately as as essential or relevant to their own lives, you know, it should go both ways. I agree. Yeah. My, yeah, when marriage equality passed, uh, I remember thinking like, oh, my parents haven't called. Same. And I have a lovely relationship with my parents, but Same. It, it hurt. <laughs> I, yeah, I agree. Or the other the other one that was, was really tough for me was the Orlando shooting. Yes, same. I felt so much grief when that happened. And uh, my queer family, you know, and, and friends, we all really, you know, rallied either in person or, you know, when we were apart online, there was so much like kind of checking in and so much love expressed. And uh, I felt a little loneliness at the the silence from many straight people in my life, which I know wasn't indifference or callousness, but just not necessarily thinking about the ways in which that might have affected their, their queer friends. And so I also try to be mindful too when something happens to a community that I'm not a part of, but that my friends are like, I try to think about like how painful and difficult that must be for them. And, you know, am I always good at reaching out to and saying those things? It's also hard to voice that to a straight person or a straight family member. Because it's like all you're looking for is like an extra little bit of thought. And that's really hard to ask or to complain about not Mm -hmm. getting. (laughs) Will you think about me? You know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds so plaintive and it makes you feel like a needy little kid again. Yeah. Yeah. And also I think with like chosen families, it's like I, well, me personally, I'm like learning to ask for help and I'm like retraining myself to do that and every time I do it, it it's a battle yeah but it's so important and building those relationships yeah because you're afraid of being rejected again right yeah yeah so the main character in the book she is a lesbian and she gets pregnant mm-hmm. I really think it's important to say that this is not just a woman who tries out being a lesbian and goes back to being a man right she never doubts her identity yeah and I think that's great. I, I wrote, mm. also wrote down something that you wrote during or after about their sex life. Mm-hmm. And you said it didn't strike her as heterosexual, just sexual. Yeah. And I love that. Well, thanks. Yeah. There's like that fuck labels element to it. That's yeah. very modern. Uh-huh. Right. There's a point at which, you know, I think sex can just be this kind of mammal act, you know, <laughs> that you're doing. That's, I think, early on when she's um, making out with Ryan, right? I think that's crucial for her to even be able to to engage in that and part of what I think draws her into that relationship is that it kind of gets her out of her head like out of that sense of like identity and whatever like who am I and where she can just kind of be in her body and do whatever this thing is that her body feels like doing in that moment after all the processing and headspace and you know emotional wreckage of her her lesbian life at that particular moment in it I think and the book is set in the late 90s too when these gender and sex roles were much more rigid right as well yeah it's partly why I said it then it gives a little more you know narrative tension and narrative stakes like if this were set now it just wouldn't be as big a deal which is amazing. Yeah, thank God. I also can't not blame that on the internet and social media, mm-hmm. right? It has shown us the, all these other perspectives in queer people more than just like the mainstream television shows. Yeah, thank goodness. 
Because I remember when the L word came out, <laughs> all my friends and I watched it ravenously, and yet we also cringed so powerfully at every episode. Like, what is this? This is not the world that we recognize at all, you know, as ours, but it's the only one we have. So that's what we've got. It's like if Sex and the City were the only show with straight women in it, you know? <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's so refreshing that now there is this multiplicity of other kinds of queer stories and ever more of them too. And especially I'm excited by the fact that there are so many more kind of genderqueer and trans and non-binary stories coming out that are also literary and like beautifully written and super yeah. intelligent. I really think yeah. it's only, we've only expanded these other perspectives in the last three to four years oh, too. Yeah. It's incredible. I have a friend who teaches at Oberlin College and, and teaches periodically a course that's about queer literature. And every time he teaches it, he'll like send out an email that's like, please, does anybody have suggestions for new books I can incorporate? And he's especially, there's there's sort of an abundance of, of you know, quote unquote, quality, teachable literature by cis white gay men. But when you want to go into, you know, if you want to expand beyond that category, it's typically been a lot harder to find. Absolutely. Things that fall into that. And I, I think that now... There's just there's a wealth of it or or coming to be, you know, around the, the burgeoning wave of it. I also think that there's a new wealth of this is going to sound shady, but there's a new wealth of um, talented writers writing. Because mm -hmm. in the past, when we had such few, let's say, like lesbian writers, the ones that got published, it wasn't maybe the, anything great. Right. And it really pains me to say that. Me too. Me too. I used to feel a lot of kind of doubt and secondhand shame when I was coming up and I would go to the lesbian section of the bookstore or the library and I could appreciate what all the like second wave lesbians had been doing in the 70s and 80s, you know, the small tiny presses and they were putting out this stuff and they believed so fervently that just having the voices out there was enough and was valuable and they were right. But when I, when I read those as somebody who really wanted to be like a literary writer, you know, and who had been steeped in really like beautiful, brilliant writing about mostly cis straight white men, but, you yeah. know, whatever. I really wanted that sense of pleasure I get in a great sentence, you know, or in just like a beautifully crafted narrative or in, you know, structural experimentation. And, and you couldn't find that in those books so much, you know, they were doing something that was really important. But I thought, is that, is that my tradition that I'm following you know you feel like there's no maybe it's more that you feel like there's kind of no tradition no path kind of laid out for you really clearly because what you see is lesbian fiction and also there's a lot of gay male fiction in the yeah, same vein or bisexual you know there's all those kinds of older ones you saw that small press those brave kind of pioneers of the form who were just doing what they could with what they had you know and then you see this like the more like pedigreed beautiful prize-winning kind of literature over here but there's not really anybody who looks like you so then you know <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> and I know that A Little Life was controversial. I liked the book a lot, uh -huh. but it also wasn't marketed as anything or any like thing about being gay at all. Yeah. So it's like this invisible gay story that popped up in this like popular book. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, it was sort of, I couldn't, I couldn't really even call it gay though. I felt like. There was not a label in the entire book. No, which I felt was either kind of brilliantly postmodern or completely a cop-out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that a lot of it dealt in kind of allegory too. And yeah. so in that like idealist world, like labels don't matter. Right. And hopefully we're heading towards a future in that way. It was like labels don't matter and AIDS never happened and politics isn't an issue. <laughs> like, yeah. It was, it was, it was a fascinating and 
for me, a, quite a maddening book. I also feel the same way about early uh, representation of LGBTQ people on film. Mm-hmm. There's these movies that absolutely change people's lives. And you go back and watch them, and they're not that great. But they change their lives because this was the only time in like, a decade they saw themselves on screen. Oh, yeah. I watched The Incredible True Adventure of Two Girls in Love so many times. That's a movie? Have you seen that movie? I've never heard of that movie. It's from like 1995 or something. It's actually really, I think it probably is really good though. I want to watch it again. It's like a teen movie, you know, it's like, and no, that's, that's a good one. But yeah, we would, I know that feeling of like, you'd cling to any scrap you could get. And a lot of the books that I have read and loved, they really are about queer people in a straight world. Mm -hmm. I really love that in your book, it was this queer normative society. That was my goal. I was, I just, when I lived in Portland, there was a point, I think it was when my parents came to visit me and a bunch of my friends came over and we had like a barbecue in my backyard. And I realized that my entire world, not my entire world, but like 80% of my daily life there was just totally queer. You know, I was living this very Portland life where I worked just like a bunch of little part-time jobs and made no money and whatever. But so I wasn't in kind of the straight world in a typical sense. So yeah, that was the norm in a way. Like you could really go for days without talking to somebody who was straight. <laughs> you know. What a pleasure. It was, yeah. <laughs> Just it kidding. was a pleasure. No, it was. It was a luxury that I, I recognized immediately when I, when I left to go teach at Oberlin College in Ohio and suddenly I was in a small town in Ohio. But it was also, of course, super claustrophobic in a way too. You know, at the same time that like you could immerse yourself really, really wonderfully, it would then sometimes be kind of hard to escape. Yeah. And the gossip was brutal you know which of course i i cover a little bit in the book too but that that institutional record of anything somebody had ever done that was fucked up or whatever you know if you'd slept with the wrong person or said something weird at a party or whatever it might be like years later it could still get summoned and and that goes to this theme or notion in the book about being the right kind of queer person Mm -hmm. and this lesbian getting pregnant unfortunately it becomes this visual thing that everybody knows about. It's very public. Yeah. We really police our own, you know? Yeah. Strongly. And I think it's because also we're being policed. We turn that eye on each other. Yeah. But also we're in this fight for acceptance for ourselves and the community on a larger whole. And so we hold ourselves to high standards in Mm -hmm. order to gain that acceptance. And I think because we're raised with this sense of like a constant threat level, you know, there's this sense of protectiveness about identity and you have to define who you are because other people have also done it for you in a way. And so you take, you know, there's this, uh, this great line by Susan Sontag that I use as the epigraph in the book, you know, I needed the identity as a weapon to match the, soci- the weapon society has against me. And so I think we do kind of, you know, part of reclaiming your identity is sort of weaponizing your, your queerness, you know? So, uh, and who do you turn that on? Well, often each other as people in any kind of insular or like politically active community will do queer or not. But I also, I, I have a friend who, um, who has a trans child and was hanging, this was a few years ago and I'm not sure what ultimately happened with this, this other kid, but was hanging out with a, another child who seemed like they might be headed towards transness. And my friend pointed out that this kid who was, who was assigned female was the strictest gender police ever right like the kids as they were as they were transitioning into their new identities were far more rigid about like that is for boys and that is for girls right like you can't wear that only i can wear that i don't know if it's just the way we're raised or if we're inherently you know oriented towards 
categories, taxonomy, or if it's just something about gender identity formation where you immediately create like an us and them or like a me and not me kind of thing. That's fascinating. Yeah. I also think a lot about our subgroups in our community Mm -hmm. and how it makes it okay for us to not conform to like the standard. I'm thinking like the stereotype around like gay men having great bodies and yeah. like possibly being hairless. Well, for like <laughs> very overweight, hairy men, they can be bears. Right. And it's like, I'm not in shape, but I'm a bear. They're like, oh, it's okay. He's a bear. Right. But what happens to if you're in between? What about the dad bods? Yeah. Where do they go? I also think that too, like the subgroups in gay culture tend to be looks based, mm. where in terms of like female and like femme people, they're more energy based. Oh, that makes sense. Well, you know, butch femme is definitely like extreme exterior but I also I think of when I think of lesbian subcultures yeah it's not so much those like you are this physical type so much as it might be a sartorial category like your butcher your femme but it seems more cultural like are you like punk or are you you know a mombian or are you you know which which are you one of those like folky or sporty or whatever it's more about your interest and your kind of subcultural affiliation with the cultural norms you're talking about Uh i'm always trying to figure out if i have a stigma against something because i've been conditioned to not like it yeah or and if that's okay because i actually don't like it (laughs) or and knowing that it's based on this conditioning does that make it better or worse but i'm aware of it but i still want it yeah there's a such a good um book called let's uh Let's talk about love. Is that what it is? A Journey to the End of Taste by Carl Wilson, this Canadian music critic. And it's about Celine Dion. And the series up until that point had been like, you know, some music writer writing about the Pixies do little, right? Or Led Zeppelin IV or whatever, where they would take one album and just write like this exhaustive little analysis of it. But what Carl Wilson did was he decided to pick somebody who he had no actual investment or interest in and try to figure out what it was that made people love Celine Dion. (laughs) And it's so good because it's sort of about Celine Dion, but it's also about taste. And what is it that makes us like what we like? You know, we think that we come up with our own taste, but it really is so heavily socially influenced. Yeah. I guess it's almost a nature-nurture kind of debate, you know? Some of it's nature. Like, there's a there's a reason, I think, that I just never loved Sarah McLaughlin, for example. <laughs> Even though I was, like, a queer woman in the 90s or whatever. But part of it's also nurture. I was also ensconced in this, like, punk aesthetic. and Yeah, because even though a lot of these cultural norms don't apply to queer people or include us, we still, we are raised in it. And it's so ingrained in us. Mm-hmm. I think a lot about just like sexual desire, you know, like sex acts and what we prefer, don't prefer or what we're willing to try and not, even though it is conditioned in us, like that's okay. (laughs) Because it actually has created, formed our desire and that's what we want. Yeah. And who knows where that comes from, you know, like what things in our infancy, you know, childhood, like the little kinks, like what those are, are created by. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating yeah you you mentioned uh, open relationships in the book Mm -hmm. and i my stance has been evolving and as of this week i've decided non-monogamy it's like a diet like some diets work perfectly for some bodies yes and some you know monogamy works perfectly for a lot of people but not everybody and i think that those yeah I guess each each kind of relationship is also like evangelized as fervently by the practitioner of it as like somebody who's on a, 
a diet they're really excited about. But yeah, totally. And and like any diet, like it also fails for a lot of people. They are like, I'm going to try this. And then like, oh, never mind. And unfortunately, when diets are personal, but these relationships always involve other people. Right, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. I first read The Ethical Slut when I, when I moved to Portland in 2002. Like a friend had it sitting in her house and I picked it up. And it turned out to be a very useful guidebook for the culture I was walking into. I had friends who were these just really um, avid non-monogamists and polyamorous. And like you couldn't hang out without with them without them being like you guys should try it like you got it no you got you know like this is the only way to be and like sharing all their exploits or whatever which was hilarious and it was great yeah I mean of course I I gave it a go as everyone does and I found that for me it just it was even more lesbian processing than I could handle (laughs) like I could deal with like casual dating which was fine or I can deal with like being in a relationship but being in multiple relationships at the same time it just short-circuited my brain. Too much processing. That's so, so funny. <laughs> so much processing. Like you have to really love processing to like to want to to pull it off successfully. I think I have much respect for the people who can who can who can do it. Yeah, I love how many stereotypes about queer people exist for a reason. Yeah, because they're true, right? <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, and you know, in Portland, we didn't. You know, many of us were underemployed and we had no money, and I and also as I you know. As we've said, there it wasn't that much out there in the culture that reflected us. And I feel like in a way, that gossip was a form of community like rulemaking and legislation in a way, and also just a way of having our own narratives. It's like our own culture, you know? Like we don't have movies about each other, but we sure can talk about like what people did last week. Oh, that's fascinating. You know, you're like making your own like ongoing soap opera. Oh, because you're not consuming yourselves in culture. And so so you're heightening your own. Yeah, you just consume each other. (laughs) Oh, why not? That's where the drama is. You're not watching Real Housewives. (laughs) Right. We are the, you know, we are each other's Real Housewives. That's all we've got. That's my theory. That's funny. I think that Portland has really recently only been mythologized as this queer haven, like Mm -hmm. an SF or New York. Yeah. How did you find it back? And were you there in the 80s? No, I was there. No, I I lived there in the summer of 1995 when I was 19 years old. So how did you first hear about it? I had a friend in college who had finished high school at 16 and just like headed for Portland and like lived in a punk house and washed dishes and at a restaurant and whatever. And she was like, Portland, Portland's so great. You got to go to Portland. So that's how we all ended going. I just, I loved it. Like right away, I just, I was like, oh, this, this feels like home. Like I had this scrappiness, you know, it was super cheap at the time. And, uh, I was just into it. Yeah. I ask yeah. because I feel like before internet, you had to hear about it through a friend or yeah. read about it, maybe in a book. Uh huh. Like I wonder how many people moved to San Francisco after reading Michelle T. Right. You know? Or Armistead Moffin or <laughs> yeah, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. That's so true. It was like that very analog way of finding out word mm. of mouth or reading a zine or whatever. And when I was living in Portland then in the aughts, there was suddenly this turning point, maybe around 2005 or 2006, where the New York Times started publishing like lifestyle articles about Portland, like every month. It'd be like 36 hours in Portland or like, oh, look at this amazing food scene that's growing in Portland, Oregon. And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> there was that feeling of like the lid was being, you know, or the curtain was being pulled aside and like everybody was about to discover Portland. And then Instagram, you know, like social media. I honestly think that 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 more than something like Portlandia or whatever, but this this really visual um, and social way that we now depict where we live and try to like sell our own lifestyles to each other, I feel like that as much as anything probably fueled Portland's explosive growth in the last five, 10 years. Because much like in New York and San Francisco, that kind of queer Portland is no longer affordable and like yeah. it doesn't exist, right? 
it's still there, but so, so many of my friends who still live in Portland are living in such precarious states. Like it's tough what they're going through. Like where you used to be able to make a living doing a couple part-time jobs, or maybe you were like a, you know, a dancer at a club or whatever. And, um, is not enough. Like you have to do multiple things, you know, they have to do harder work. They have to go deeper into sex work or they, you know, they're just like hanging on by a thread or like constantly having to move to farther out places, et cetera. So it's definitely changed a lot. Um, I guess I see it hitting a lot of, at least a lot of members of my queer community, at least the ones who are posting about it really actively and, and candidly, uh, it's hitting people really hard. The title of the book is Stray City. Mm-hmm. It's a city of strays. Was that, is that like a awareness that people living in it had, or is that you like now in hindsight calling them strays? That's a good question. I think that, yeah, I don't know if, I don't know if people would have self-identified as strays, but it was certainly a sense that I had when I moved there and started to learn people's life stories. And it is a city where so many people come from elsewhere to live. There are, of course, a lot of local Portlanders. Like, I also know a lot of people who did grow up there and stayed there. But certainly the majority of people that I knew socially and spent time with, or in the workplace even, um, had come from somewhere else. And, you know, it was was a destination much the way that San Francisco or New York or L.A. would have been. But of a different kind. I think you you would go to New York or LA if you had like a career in mind, you know, and you would go to San Francisco if you just wanted to live that, that particular kind of gay life. And then Portland, yeah, being a little more under the radar, it was almost a place you could kind of hide or like a refuge, you know, it was sort of a, almost a backwater in some ways, like when you were actually living there. It was, you know, the nearest big city is Seattle, and that's like three hours away. And then the next closest big city is like San Francisco, it's like an 11 hour drive, you know, it is remote, it is out there. So there was that sense of being kind of tucked into this little valley on a distant corner of the coast. With it changing so much, I know you left for a teaching job. Yeah. If you had the option, would you move back? Yeah, I think really. I would. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't know. It's it's hard. I, I don't know how much of an authority I can be on anything Portland anymore because the time period that I knew it in is so it's it's so different now from that in a lot of ways. But I will say that every time I go back, I just instantly feel happy upon landing. Like just the site, there's something about the landscape and the kind of grayness and the super dark evergreen trees and all the like mossy shingled houses and, you know, the scrappy like lo-fi part of Portland is still kind of everywhere, even amongst the shiny condos and big new houses and stuff like that. Um, I think I would still love to live there. Yeah. That sh- I think that makes sense appealing to someone who has grown up as like a rule as you did. Yeah. Right. You grew up in a very, very small town. Yeah. I grew up in the woods outside a town of 3000 people and, uh, and a pretty economically depressed part of, of Northern Minnesota. And maybe you're right. I think that might be part of it that Portland's just like scruffiness. There was a brief period where I lived in kind of a fancy neighborhood and I always felt a little out of sorts there. You know, I was just like, ah, I can't, I felt like I had no access to the, the life that was all around me. Like, and then when I, when I moved, um, I managed to buy a tiny little house of my own and a, on a block that was much like shabbier and more mixed. And I was so content there. Yeah. <laughs> but, when you say you grew up in the woods, is that a lot of like alone time then? Yes. So much alone time. It was, uh, you know, we lived on a dirt road, uh, in the, you know, right bordering public forest, public lands, forest. And, uh, we only had three television channels and I wasn't really allowed to watch TV anyway. So I spent so much time reading books, writing books, running away in the woods with my dog, you know, 
yeah, I lived a very active fantasy life. I'm actually really glad I grew up without the internet. I think that would have probably compromised the, all that time I got to spend in my own head. Yeah, reading your book in the age of Me Too, mm-hmm. I don't know that I would have thought about this before that, but currently we're having this public education about sexual assault and the murkiness of consent. Yeah. And all of the sex in the book is consensual, mm-hmm. but it does reveal the gray area. I wrote down something that you wrote and it said, I stayed and said yes because it was easier than pushing him away and having to discuss it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That is her giving consent, kind of. Yeah. But I also like wrote that down because that it's that being easier to say yes, it, that can happen across all genders, all people too. That's not like a male-female thing. Oh, the, yeah. I imagine I imagine not. <laughs> it's something that uh, that is super familiar to me from my youth when I was, you know, hooking up with men and when I was still kind of figuring things out. Um, it was crazy to me in, in retrospect to look back at the the conditioning that had me, you know, that was that was that was a, a not infrequent thing, you know, to happen for me or for my friends or whatever. And again, it, and I, from what I know, many people that <laughs> experience that. And it's the kind of thing where it's not like you feel um, like bad or violated afterward necessarily, but it, it's kind of a depressing choice to make. And honestly, I feel like if I had been, you know, if I were the guy or whatever, the other person who's proceeding without realizing that my partner is not really interested, like I would have wanted to know, you know, yeah. it doesn't really serve anyone. I have said no in those instances and had then had to discuss it. Oh. And it's a really hard conversation to have. Mm-hmm. It's like to each its own. But I also think it goes to this thing of we condition women to be people pleasers. Yeah. You know, and that is a way to do it. Totally. We've learned to say like, yes, okay, early on, like suck it up and do whatever task that you didn't necessarily want to do. But because, yeah. I am fascinated endlessly by Monica Lewinsky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think recently she's come out and or let's say ten, uh, two years ago, she, she's writing in Vanity Fair now and she's an extraordinary writer. She is. <laughs> so two years ago, she said that what happened between President Bill Clinton and I was totally consensual, full stop. And now she has changed her statement. She has addressed that and she says, now I can acknowledge the power differential between the most powerful man in the world and this intern and how it was yeah. impossible for me to give consent. Yeah. That, I thought that was really fascinating too. I read that, that, that piece. Evolution. That evolution. Yeah. And I think that's also important to recognize is that we can, I think you also feel like you can't change your mind. Like in the moment, you're like, well, we're already headed toward this. I can't say no, or, you know, I can't veer from this course. But also in the longer term, right? Like, sure, that might've been 10 years ago, but just because I convinced myself it was okay then, I can actually think back on it and have like a more nuanced understanding of what happened. Yeah. And that's okay. And that's not somebody being inconsistent or a liar or deceptive or whatever. But yeah, we understand things differently. Yeah. I feel like I'm very much a people pleaser too, which Mm -hmm. I think is my Southern upbringing. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so very often I'll have a... A not an argument, but a discussion with somebody, and they'll say something, and then hours or even days later, it'll, I'll think about the discussion and think, "Oh my god, that really hurt when yeah. they said this." Yeah. But we move past it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, "Oh my god, I'm really upset about this thing," but it, your mind takes a minute to process being upset about it because yeah. you don't want to, you know, like freak out in the moment. Yeah. Oh, totally. I'll have things like like even at, at readings, I sometimes will get like an invasive question or something, and in the moment, I'm just. I just roll with it, you know, and give an answer. And then I'm like, oh, thanks so much for your question. Then a few days later, I'm like, I can't believe they asked that, <laughs> you know? 
but what am I going to, I just, just move on. Like you have the choice then, right? You can go back and be like, why did you say that? And then pay the price in processing. And like, you're like, how much is an hour of my time worth? I think of it as too, <laughs> when that um, happens to me, I think about it. And then the next time it happens, I will actually have the exact thought of, I have to address this now because I'll be really mad later if I don't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We've been talking a lot about the conditioning of men, women, non-binary people, everybody. Uh, we've not actually addressed non-binary people, but... Um, but that is been... a perspective I'd love to hear about all this because walking that line between the two, like there's a whole other set of complexities and nuances. Yeah. I bring that up because even as a queer woman, did you do you feel pressure from society to have children? Oh, absolutely. Really? Especially now. And to get, but even more so, I think, to get married. My partner and I are not married. We've been together for eight years, but we've never married. When I, I remember when I was living, I was a Stegner Fellow at Stanford in 2002, 2003, 2003, I guess, which is when uh, Gavin Newsom issued that kind of groundbreaking directive to allow gay marriages in San Francisco. For like several years at that point, I had been so relieved that I was kind of off the hook. Like ever since I'd come out, there was some like pain about the coming out, but nobody was pressuring me like, when are you going to find somebody and get married? When are you going to settle down? And my poor younger brothers were getting like shown grandma's wedding ring like at every family holiday and like, you know. <laughs> so I, the day that was announced, I came into class and one of my classmates at Stanford was like, did you hear the news? Are you going to get married now? And I was like, what? <laughs> I thought I was free of this. Pr like, I really liked the fact that I could just kind of follow my own path, you know, that I could just do whatever in my relationships. And in my, you know, once you're, once you're off that track, for some reason, marriage is like that number one adult landmark, quote unquote, adult landmark that people expect. And once somebody marries, like everything else can fall into place in the kind of hetero slash homonormative capitalist American dream, you know? Maybe it's a, previously nobody would have expected you to have kids. Now it's become so commonplace, especially among lesbians, because you have a free uterus, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Unlike with gay men, where it's a totally different... I don't know what the the pressure is as far as childbearing around that, but I do have some gay male friends who, who have spoken about the way it becomes sort of a status symbol. Yeah, if you don't adopt, it's a fortune to have biological children. Yeah. It's like living in New York and having like five giant dogs, you know, like we have the space to do this. You know, if you're like two gay dads with biological babies, you either had a really generous friend with a uterus or <laughs> yeah. you had bank to yeah. hire the staff to like create your child. And I, I brought it up because motherhood is such a big part of the book, mm -hmm. but also it's a big part of our lives and talking about marriage and having kids without these cultural markers in one's own life. Mm -hmm. It's we have to reevaluate. Am I happy? <laughs> you know, yeah. and often the answer is yes. Yeah. And we're often, I think, conditioned again, back to the conditioning to think that, that, that happiness is like these particular things, like that is the path to a happy and fulfilled life. Um, and one of the things I, again, I love about like being queer, about discovering that about myself earlier on was that I could make my own way. And like, I wasn't tied to, a, for women, especially for cis women, what is a very biologically driven timeline, like we're conditioned to think like you're not desirable after your mid-30s or whatever, you know? And I, I think it's linked to fertility, you know? Like you kind of expire at a certain point by the kind of straight timeline of things. Or we think that like, you know, a, a woman of 40 who hasn't had any children, like people speculate, oh, she must be so sad. You know, she missed her chance or whatever it might be. Something must be wrong with her. Right. But when you're queer, nobody's like, we don't look at like 50-year-old lesbians without kids and think like, oh, how sad. We're like, oh yeah, they're lesbians. Well, it makes me sad to think that maybe we're heading that 
that direction. I know. What if, what if that, that is like, you know, like we get the freedom to do, you know, certain things and, and it's, you know, more socially sanctioned to have kids and there's so many more opportunities to be queers with, with kids. And yet at the same time, what if the double-edged sword is that then that becomes the expectation and the pressure that we have to push back against. Oy. Yes. In an era of overpopulation and the dying of the earth, no less. Oh my God. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Well, I've been uh, hanging out with this, uh, with this gay elder, um, Don Kilhefner was one of the co-founders of the radical fairies and of the gay community center, as it was called in LA at the time. And it's so interesting to hang out with somebody who's like 80 years old because he has such a different, um, take on it. You know, he has this, like this idea that Gays are here. He's, it's, it's kind of an essentialist view of homosexuality, but that there's something special about, about queers and that we're here to do different work in society. Like we're here to, we have a different purpose, you know? I love that. Yeah, it's kind of great. Uh, that's such a nice place to leave it because we're almost out of time. Okay. Before I let you go, since you are an author, do you have just like two books that you can recommend to everybody that they would love, love, love? I know that's a really big so, question. <laughs> I would say the collected writings of James Baldwin you cannot go wrong with. He's just such a brilliant thinker and gay, although not overtly so in his writing for the most part. But the way he writes about American culture is so trenchant and so smart. He also makes a beautiful sentence. <laughs> he's always been, he's somebody whose writing I can return to again and again and again. And I always learn from it. And it just, he's transformed in a way, the way that I see our entire political system and our culture. Yeah, and our history. it's terrifyingly present. Yes, right? It's amazing how relevant he continues to be, which is awesome. Um, I always have students writing me and asking me for recommendations for, for what they should read as sort of their, their queer coming up. I think, so a couple, I'll just say a couple. One is We the Animals by Justin Torres. I just adore that book. I think it's so beautiful. Yeah. It's a nice like novella, like a quick read. Yeah. It's Fantastic. quick and yet it's so weighty. And I, I taught it to a class and so I reread it and like broke down the structure for myself as I was doing it. And it's inc- it's beautifully built in a way that is invisible to the reader unless you really like take it apart. But it's, it's kind of a masterpiece, I think. And I also, um, Michelle T's Valencia was a super crucial book to me when I was, you know, uh, younger. I just think it captures this like exuberance and this wonderful, like candor and frankness. Have you read that book? I've not read Valencia, but I've read many other ones. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's so great. And she's such a wonderful, like kind of literary, um, icon of the, of the queer world, like super generous and she's super productive and, and there's, there's just like wonderful energy to her work. So that would be another one that I often, that I often direct, um, especially young queer women toward. Thank you. And thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Been a delight. And that's our show. If you enjoyed the interview, please take a second to subscribe. You can do that on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you prefer. Also, please rank us five stars and leave a comment on iTunes. Leaving a comment specifically on iTunes is one of the biggest ways to help new people find our show. You can also sign up for a newsletter at lgbtqpodcast.com. It's a great way to stay up to date on all of our new episodes and live shows. We've got a couple live shows coming up this summer, one on either coast. So that's lgbtqpodcast.com. I'm also on Twitter at JeffMasters1 if you want to connect or recommend a guest. Special thanks to our partners at Panoply, our old home after Buzz TV, the Elon University in Los Angeles studio, Jason McMurdy, and everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>